Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Uh, welcome to the uh, third of the Sunday afternoon talks, and uh, the theme for today is spiritual birth control, which I thought was an interesting title. I didn't come up with the title myself, but I thought it was a, a uh, an interesting title, and um, uh, it reminded me of a um, uh, an occasion when I was uh, at a conference of uh, Western Buddhist teachers with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in in Dharamsala many years ago, uh, back in the early 90s, I think. And the subject uh, subject of birth control was uh, being uh, discussed amongst the, uh, His Holiness and the uh, the group of Western teachers. And he turned to me at a certain point and said, "Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu, what do you think about birth control?" And I said, "Well, I'm doing my bit." Yeah. <laughs> as a, a, a Buddhist monk. And then it occurred to me, I said, well, actually, I think in Buddhist practice, what we are uh, focusing on is rebirth control. So, so that, uh, that sort of sprang to my mind, that particular uh, encounter, sweet uh, exchange with my, between myself and His Holiness many, many years ago. So with, with respect to this, this theme, um, the, uh, the, the subject that I'll explore is uh, around the teachings of dependent origination uh, rather than sort of spiritual ways that you might prevent yourself from having babies um, apart from uh, the, uh, that as being a, an obvious meaning of the, the word uh, birth control the, the, the theme for today will be um, about uh, spiritual birth or rebirth and or psychological birth and rebirth and uh, that uh, rather than biological. So that's the, that's the, the intention uh, for today. I'll focus on that particular area of things. And uh, I'm also going <coughs> to presume that most people who are gathered here and uh, watching and listening in from afar will have uh, some degree of familiarity with those teachings of the Buddha on dependent origination. And this is where he uh, uh, mapped out the relationship between uh, ignorance and then uh, the uh, the field of sense experience, the the, uh, uh, the, uh, then the connection of uh, of of perception and feeling and craving, and then to uh, birth. Uh, in this particular instance, this in this um, say approach, we're talking about psychological birth, and then that leading on to uh, to suffering, difficulty, uh, dis. Uh, discontent, dis-ease, and then to further birth and the, the uh, continuing of that cycle. So uh, uh, if, if anyone is unfamiliar with the teachings on dependent origination, then I recently published this particular little book called Catastrophe Apostrophe, the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination cessation. So uh, not that this is a shameless act of self-promotion, but uh, I thought well, since I'd 
put their uh, bit of work and thought into gathering these teachings and ideas together in this book, and I saw that the theme being suggested, I thought I'd put them together and explore some of the themes uh, here in this Sunday afternoon talk that I also explore in this little book. And um, so it's, uh, I'm not pretending that uh, what we'll offer today is ex uh, sort of exhaustive or the only way of looking at the teachings on dependent origination, but it's, it's one angle of approach uh, and uh, one way of uh, thinking about things or exploring those particular teachings because uh, the Buddha really emphasized the importance of this, uh, this particular set uh, of teachings. It's described how uh, after his enlightenment, as, uh, reflecting uh, on the, the nature of his liberation in Bodhgaya uh, after his full enlightenment, that th these themes of dependent origination uh, are in the arising mode, the cessation mode, and arising and ceasing together, that was uh, a lot of what he was contemplating for long periods of time, and many, many uh, hours, days uh, following the enlightenment. And there's also a place in the teachings where he's, he makes the, the comment, one who understands dependent origination one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So it's a, a, a really crucial, essential teaching in this respect. The, um, uh, there are different ways of looking at the teachings on dependent origination. And um, in uh, uh, some uh, uh, ways it's talked about in the suttas and in the commentaries, then it covers a, uh, a span of, of several lifetimes. It's talking about the birth, uh, physical birth of an individual being and then uh, the, um, the process of experience and the, exp the qualities of, of suffering that arise from that and, uh, and so on and so forth. And this is known as the three lives interpretation, past life, present life, and future life. And so that, uh, say, the the form that's presented in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, focuses uh, mostly on that uh, sort of three lifetime interpretation of this, uh, this say, set of qualities, this one, what we call dependent origination, dependent cessation. Um, and then uh, another uh, angle of approach uh, is what's known as the momentary, uh, uh, say, uh, the momentary interpretation, or, or looking upon dependent origination as a momentary experience, as it's describing uh, the um, not the physical birth, but the the mind being caught into a particular experience and being born into that uh, that um, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, that emotion, that thought, that feeling, that memory, that that idea. Um, so a psychological birth, and uh, within the forest tradition. Uh, teachers like uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah, uh, Venerable Ajahn Buddhadasa, uh, focus mostly upon that, uh, what we call the momentary approach. And uh, debates have gone on for, <laughs> for years and years about which is the, the, you know, the right understanding. Is it three lifetimes? Is it the momentary approach? Or what's, uh, what's the true story here? And uh, uh, Venerable um, Somdet uh, Payuto uh, is one of the most eminent scholars and uh, um, practitioners of Buddhism in Thailand. He did an analysis of the whole Pali Canon and the commentaries in his extremely thorough way. And he found that in the, in the um, commentaries, about two-thirds of the, the teachings refer to the three lifetimes model and about one-third refer to the momentary model. And uh, uh, in the suttas, it's the other way around. So you have about two-thirds 
of the references to dependent origination in the suttas uh, uh, are to, uh, around the momentary uh, interpretation, and about one third uh, are referring to several lifetimes over the three lifetimes. So um, I won't get into that debate here, but for uh, for today, I'll just be looking at the the momentary interpretation. And when we talk about uh, birth control, it's uh, or, and spiritual birth control, it's that uh, quality of, of working with the mind and seeing how those mental births, psychological births, take place, how the mind gets born into like and dislike, comfort and discomfort, approving, disapproving, happiness and unhappiness uh, uh, on a momentary basis. Uh, it, it, the... the um, a pattern of dependent origination is described in various different ways in the in the suttas. I think about eight or nine different formats you can find of different kinds, but it's generally summarized as having 12 individual links. And particularly in relationship to this psychological birth, uh, it's a process that happens very, very quickly from the, so the beginning of the cycle at uh, avijja, ignorance, not seeing things clearly, to the, the feeling of dukkha, or what in Pali is described as sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, sokopari deva dukkha domanas upayasa, that happens very, very quickly. Uh, Lumpo Cha described it as um, like falling out of a tree and trying to count the branches of the tree on the way down, like trying to keep track of all the different uh, aspects of dependent origination. <laughs> it's, it happens so fast, you can't, you can't count all the branches, but you know, thud, ow! You know, you know when you hit the ground that it, it hurts. So that's a good way of appreciating the, uh, the kind of rapidity and the, uh, sort of, um, the speed with which this, this process takes place. So in looking at this, and particularly in terms of um, this sort of psychological uh, birth, then uh, there's a, a, a certain teaching that um, I find quite uh, beautiful, very helpful, that, that where the Buddha talks about um, the nature, how this this um, of psychological birth occurs, and uh, in a, it's in the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, the Exposition of the Elements, Sutta number 140 in the Middle Length Discourses. And uh, he points, in that instance, uh, rather than going into dependent origination in detail, he points it to it as, uh, uh, say, the, the result of the mind conceiving. Manyati is the Pali word for conceiving. So that the, this is how the, the mind creates the I am, the I, me, mine feeling. So he says that in that particular teaching, he says, I am is a conceiving, uh, I will be is a conceiving, you know, I will not be is a conceiving, I, uh, this, uh, I am this is a conceiving. A conceiving is a disease, it's a tumor, it's like a poisoned arrow, like uh, it's, uh, it's, it's burdensome, it's stressful. And uh, <clears throat> to free the heart from all conceivings, if the heart is freed from that manyati, that conceiving, that eye-making and mind-making, then one is called a sage at peace. And a sage, uh, like a wise, a wise being, one, uh, one who is uh, a being that is fully at peace, one who is, who is free, who is uh, unburdened. A sage at peace is not born. A sage at peace does not age, they do not die. And because there's nothing in them whereby they could be born. So that's what one particular 
a place. I, I, find, I feel in the, in the Pali Canon where it's very, very clear that the Buddha is speaking about uh, not being born into like and dislike, comfort, discomfort, uh, gain and loss and so forth. That uh, a sage at peace is not born, so that that being is, is alive, they're present. They're, they're, there's this, uh, say, the, uh, the existence or the, uh, the manifestation of a living being, but they are not born, they're not buying into things, they're not uh, taking hold and identifying with the, the, the field of, uh, of experience. And uh, as he says in, in that particular teaching, a sage at peace is not born. They do not age, they do not die. <laughs> doesn't mean that the body won't die, but it means that the heart not being born into things, not uh, taking hold and identifying with, with uh, the field of ex uh, sensory experience, mental experience, then that being born, aging and dying, the, the heart is not, uh, say, tied to that. It does not get involved in that, it is liberated from those those boundaries, those uh, those limits. Though, in, in reflecting on this uh, uh, this area and, and, the, and the control aspect of of birth, uh, spiritual birth control, uh, how we can work with this mind, this life of ours, in order to um, say uh, counteract the habits of getting born into uh, into the things that the mind chases after, or opinionates about, or, or is worried about or is, is uh, um, say, annoyed by or wants to possess and, and uh, those pools of desire and fear and aversion and opinion and, and so forth. And then uh, uh, we can see that there's different ways, different stages of that process where the mind can be liberated. And so reflecting on this over the years, uh, uh, I've come up with, say, four distinct exit points from the, the cycles of dependent origination. Again, I'm assuming that most people are somewhat familiar with the, 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 the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, I'll, uh, again, it's, it's all here, <laughs> all here in this little, <laughs> this little book, if you available on the shelves here at Amravati, also on the website. Yeah. To, uh, again, not, uh, there are many other books on dependent origination, particularly the one by Venerable Paiuto is particularly, uh, particularly good, published by Buddha Dhamma Foundation, just called Dependent Origination. It's an extremely helpful handbook. But uh, so the, uh, the four exit points that uh, uh, seem to be, uh, uh, say, clearly marked or stand out clearly in, in my mind are somewhat related to the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the, uh, and the first one, the, fir the first Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha, of suffering, of dissatisfaction. Uh, and the, uh, on the, uh, in the, the cycle of 12 links, then dukkha is the last one, it's sort of link number 12. That's where, uh, when the mind has, has been, uh, say, affected by ignorance, has been uh, caught up in sense perception and has followed a particular pattern of craving and has been born into a, a like or a dislike, a hope or a fear, um, comfort and discomfort. And the result of that attachment, that, that birth, is Soka Parideva Dukkha Dominasa Upayasa, that quality of Dukkha, dissatisfaction. So that so the first exit point is related to the first noble truth. There is dukkha. Uh, this is a, what the Buddha pointed out as the, the first noble truth. We are not totally happy all of the time. We uh, we experience dissatisfaction, and uh, uh, related to that, 
there's a, a, a particular, uh, and how the Buddha then says we should work, or it's most helpful to, to work with that experience of dukkha. It's the first noble truth because it's, it needs to be acknowledged, it needs to be recognized. Parinyayanti, it needs to be uh, appreciated, to be known. And that quality of turning towards uh, dukkha and recognizing, oh, this is the feeling of dissatisfaction. Then uh, in, a, in a separate teaching, he points out that that experience of dukkha, it can ripen in two ways. It can ripen in more dukkha, that, so when you're feeling suffering and dis, uh, incomplete and lonely and insecure, uh, frazzled or irritated and angry with something or wanting something that you haven't got, and the mind is locked into that, that uh, if there is that uh, real appreciation, if there is that parinya, that recognition, oh, this is dukkha, then, um, then that uh, will lead on a pathway towards liberation. If there isn't that, if it's just, I haven't got what I wanted and that's bad, or that person's really awful, they're annoying me, or uh, if only I wasn't here, if only I was over there, then life would be great. <laughs> then that, uh, the, the, the attachment to the, uh, an identification with dukkha then leads just to more dukkha. That creates more ignorance, more, uh, uh, more uh, of a tendency to see things unclearly, and then the whole cycle of dependent origination begins again. It leads to more avicca, more ignorance, which leads on to, say, more tendency to uh, identify and attach to our desires and fears and aversions and so forth. But if that dukkha is recognized, if there is that, that, uh, that sense of uh, apprehension, apprehending dukkha, understanding it, receiving it, then it ripens in, a, in, a, in another way. And the Buddha in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses in the Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 63, he says, dukkha can ripen in two ways, either in more dukkha or it can ripen in search, which means to say, there must be a way out of this. There must be an alternative. This can't be the whole story. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm prone towards complaining or worrying or, or desiring. Uh, I'm addicted to this particular uh, habit, but uh, I, I know in my heart, I intuit that that doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that way. There has to be an alternative. And then in the, a teaching called the um, what's known as transcendent dependent origination, then that uh, he points out how that um, dukkha then uh, following that <laughs> that second track of uh, of search, it leads towards faith. That sense of yes, there must be a way. That's right. And the, the heart intuits that, and that faith, um, that sadha, uh, that leads to delight, pamuja. And that, that delight leads to joy, piti, rapture. And that rapture leads to calmness, pas, pasadhi. Uh, <coughs> that uh, pasadhi ripens into sukha, or a profound contentment. And when the heart is content, then it's easier, uh, easy for it to be concentrated. When the mind is concentrated and focused on the present, then it, um, it gives rise easily and naturally to insight, to the knowledge and vision of the way things are. And that, in turn, leads to, uh, to uh, dispassion, uh, to, uh, to disenchantment, to viraga and, and uh, uh, nibida, which then leads to liberation, to vimuti, and uh, true, uh, true knowledge and, uh, and liberation, true knowledge and, uh, and that freedom of the heart. So that 
um, that uh, is, say, the, the first exit point from the cycle is, <laughs> is that feeling of dukkha itself. So when we've, we've really messed up, we've followed some impulse, we've got angry and blown up at somebody, or we've overindulged at the mealtime, or we've uh, been uh, telling the story, we, we've bent the truth to, <laughs> for the sake of spinning a good yarn, telling a good story, and, uh, and even though we recognize, well, it didn't quite happen that way, but <laughs> you've drifted into bending and distorting the, the truth just for the sake of, of uh, keeping the, the people that you're talking to uh, amused or interested or impressed, that uh, <clears throat> when that experience of dukkha is felt, uh, when we, we we recognize that, then we can take that feeling of dukkha, and then that uh, right there can be a cause for liberation. So that's the the first way of controlling those uh, those habits of psychological birth or, uh, or, or the um, the the mind getting born into things. You know, appreciating the the painful results of having been born into that like and uh, that like or dislike that. Uh, feeling that, that attachment to that opinion, that point of view, or that memory, or that uh, opinion, whatever it, it might be. And then the second exit point is related to the second noble truth. And the second noble truth is the, um, the, uh, the Buddha spells out as the cause of dukkha, uh, as uh, self-centered craving, tanha. And that uh, <coughs> the, um, uh, the, and this is highlighted by the Buddha in the teaching on the Four Noble Truths because this is in a way the, the most accessible, it's the biggest, <laughs> the biggest fire exit. Like sitting here in the temple of Amaravati, I've got a, a double door in front of me with a, 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 an escape sign with a, a running figure and, and an arrow. And, uh, this is the escape. <laughs> this, is the, this is the main way out. If the building catches fire, that's the fire escape. So this, um, the second of the, uh, the exit routes um, uh, the sort of fire exits, if you like, from the cycle of dependent origination. That's the biggest one, the most obvious one. That's the kind of double door treatment. And um, so the Buddha highlights this in the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, uh, that uh, craving, um, conditioned by feeling, that the, the, uh, the quality of craving, if that's recognized and if that's known, that this is tanha, the different, whether it's subtle kinds of craving in terms of cra craving to be, craving to become something, uh, bhavatana, or the craving to not be, to not feel, to not experience, vibhavatana, to, to annihilate or to, to go numb, to, to, say, to switch off, push away, or the more obvious kinds of craving, craving for pl uh, pleasant sense objects, that uh, if that craving is, is recognized, if it's let go of, then uh, that is uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the best way, the most helpful and effective way of working with that experience. And that is, uh, say, leads very directly to that, uh, the ending of suffering, the, the way out of suffering. Uh, in, the, in the cycle of the 12 links of dependent origination, just to spell those out briefly, <laughs> start number one is uh, ignorance, avijja, not seeing things clearly. Uh, avijja pachaya sankara, sankara, uh, ignorance conditions um, formations or that sankhara is that compounding quality of the mind it's that, that which creates the sense of self and other here and there, this and that um, so that uh, with ignorance there is the, the, say, the beginning of that subject-object division um, 
<coughs> sankhara uh, conditions uh, consciousness, vijnana, sensory consciousness, and then uh, consciousness conditions mind and body, nama and rupa. So uh, again, there's, there's many, many ways you can regard this, interpret this, and people have written many uh, books and doctorates <laughs> uh, about uh, different ways of understanding these, but uh, this is essentially, I, 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 in working with this over many years, one can see this all as the, the, the forming and the strengthening of the, 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 the mind, uh, uh, say, that knows the world and the objects of the world, so that the uh, a strengthening and a solidifying of the subject-object division. There's me here, there's the world out there. I'm sitting here, there's a microphone in front of me, there's a little camera with a red light on it. I'm sitting here in the temple. There's I am speaking, I am hearing the sound of my voice, I am seeing you, I'm seeing the world. The world is out there, it's the, the building, the people, the, you know, the camera, the microphone, the sound of this voice. That's the, the object and here is the subject. So that in that first part of the dependent origination process up uh, and with um, nama and rupa, mind and body, then conditioning the six senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and then the so six senses then producing, conditioning the realm of feeling, feeling of liking, disliking, and neutral feeling, painful feeling, pleasant feeling, neutral feeling. So that's the, uh, uh, the setup, if you like, of the, uh, of the um, subject-object division, and then the formation of the, the sensory world as, a, as a, an experiencer here, and then there is the, f the pattern of the sensory world. And then when the, the attention engages with the particular object, then it produces pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. So then that feeling, Vedana, then conditions craving, tanha. So if there is uh, considerable ignorance, if the, the mind is uh, uh, started off from a not seeing clearly, then even that process of, of uh, say, going from ignorance to uh, sense contact, that's very, very quick, like Ajahn Chah put it, like falling out of a tree and, and uh, trying to count the branches on the way down. It, it happens too fast for ordinary sense perception, ordinary experiential process to, to keep track of it. But um, that's how it works. The Buddha mapped it out very, very, in a very, very similar way to sort of neuroscientists of today as well. So then the, this key link, the bridge between feeling and craving, that's the, the important part. Because if there's a lot of ignorance in the mix, then if there's something pleasant that's experienced, then that liking goes to, I want. Um, if the, or if it's something that's painful, it's I dislike from uh, from disliking to uh, you know, I've got to get away from. I can't stand. I hate. Um, so that uh, is a, a bridge that is being crossed. There's a, a a choice that's being made, so that the mind is is going from um, just knowing pleasant feeling to I want. I've got to have or knowing painful feeling to I can't stand. I've got to get rid of. So. Normally things work so fast, and if the mind is is, uh, is ignorant, doesn't see things clearly, and is uh, and is untrained, then <laughs> that that those kind of judgments seem to be automatic. There doesn't seem to be any kind of of um, uh, say uh, division or, or, or difference between those. That I, I like means I want, <laughs> or I dislike means I hate. Uh, but in terms of the uh, Buddha Dhamma and the, the Buddha's teaching and this way of practice. 
the Buddha's encouragement is, well, look closely, because there's a bridge that's being crossed. There can be liking without that turning into the craving of, I want, I've got to have. Or, or there can be disliking, something can be painful, and it doesn't have to be hated, it doesn't have to be feared, it doesn't have to be resented. It can be known as, this is a painful feeling. Ow! It's painful. That There is pain there, but the mind doesn't have to hate it or fear it or reject it or have any comment about it. It's still painful, but there's no wrongness uh, attributed to it. There's no, there's, the mind is not adding anything on to it. So the, the Buddha pointed to knowing that, how that, that quality of craving arises, and through that letting go, uh, seeing, letting go of those reactions of, of wanting or hating, uh, uh, to, to be able to know the realm of feeling as it is. There's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, emotion. Some are pleasant, some are painful, some are neutral. It's like this. <laughs> and on its own, the realm of feeling is quite simple, quite innocent, uh, quite spacious. You can have a, a really, really pleasant feeling and not try to own it or keep it or preserve it or claim it. Just here it is, it's delicious, it's like this, it's beautiful full stop. <laughs> or it can be something really painful, really uncomfortable, really difficult, uh, an illness or an injury or a, a loss in your life. And it can be known, this is grief, it's like this, it's painful, it's this injury, this, uh, this, this hurts, ow. And the mind doesn't have to add anything to it, there's no, uh, there's no kind of embellishment or or, or conceiving around it, not the no no manyati, the mind not saying I am this, I've got this, I have this, I uh, I sh uh, I don't want to be this way. So that's the second exit point it relates to the, the second noble truth, um, and that the the Buddha's encouragement is with uh, with the um, uh, with the experience of tanha craving to let go. And if it's let go of, then it doesn't lead to the, the next uh, sections of the path. So, the, so uh, I think if I'm counting properly, <laughs> Vedana, feeling is, is uh, link number seven, and then craving is link number eight. If uh, that craving is attached to, and, and the mind buys into that, then it heads very quickly from craving to clinging, upadana, which is number nine, then um, um, bhava, which is uh, uh, link number 10, which is becoming, and then which leads to jati, which is birth, which is uh, link number 11, and then birth leads to uh, aging and death, jara, marana, sokapari, deva, dukkha, domanasu, vayasa, aging uh, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, link number 12. So, uh, <clears throat> so if uh, that, that bridge is not crossed, um, if that is that those feelings of liking and disliking are recognized and let go of, then uh, that uh, f uh, feeling doesn't ripen in dukkha. It doesn't ripen in that in that kind of birth and then subsequent uh, psychological death and uh, and and loss. But rather, it's known simply as it is. It's an aspect of nature, and that in itself ripens uh, with a quality of, of freedom and ease and peacefulness. The third exit point is, <laughs> and these uh, you might notice are sort of going back around the cycle. So we started off at link 12, second one was between link 7 and 8. This goes back to link number 1, and this is, uh, is related to the first noble truth. So this is uh, not allowing uh, vijja uh, to, to arise in the first place, sustaining the mind in a quality of 
awareness of vicha, awakened awareness, so that uh, avicha, the ignorance, doesn't arise. So, so back at the kind of way, the beginning of link number one, uh, which on the, the cycle is avicha pachaya sankara, ignorance conditions formations. So this exit point is sustaining the mind in awakened awareness. Uh, many of, uh, of us have been listening to Lumpur Sumedho's Dhamma teachings, uh, particularly over these last few months, and almost every single one of them <laughs> revolves around exactly this. Uh, he uses a variety of terms. Often he's talking about consciousness, uh, awareness, awakened awareness, uh, uh, and uh, there's different words we can use. The, the Pali word vijja, I feel, is, is very helpful in representing this quality. So that if the mind is uh, fully awake and aware, then ignorance doesn't arise. It's attu- the, the, the mind, the, the heart, the jitta, is fully attuned to the Dhamma, to the reality of this, uh, this present moment. So uh, and the, uh, the ignorance does not arise. But when, uh, when we look at the process of dependent origination, the, the uh, arising part is, in a way, just the first half, part one, <laughs> So that leads to uh, the uh, um, the experience of, uh, of, of uh, uh, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Then, in in many many um, uh, recensions or, or places in the teachings where the Buddha speaks about this, then it immediately goes on to what is called the cessation side or the um, the 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 ending part or the 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 um, the, uh, the kind of going uh, going against the, uh, the the same pattern of arising. It's a pattern of cessation. So you can, in a way, talk about the the whole process as dependent origination and and cessation. So uh, when the Buddha is describing this, uh, then he uh, he says, "Avijaya taveva asesa viragani roda." With the complete cessation of uh, with with uh, the complete cessation of ignorance, then there is a cessation of sankhara. When there is no ignorance, then sankhara, that uh, division, that uh, uh, form, that formation, uh, formational tendency, doesn't arise. So when we use the word niroda, uh, 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 then it, uh, in English it's usually translated as cessation. Uh, which tends to mean the the ending of something that has begun. But again, the Venerable Paiuto, in his wonderful book, uh, Dependent Origination, has a whole little section, a, a page or two, on uh, it's, it's, it, that's entitled A Problem with the Word Niroda. And he spells this this out quite, quite beautifully and clearly. He says, well, it's usually translated as cessation, which implies the ending of something that has begun. But Niroda also means non-arising, it means the, the restraining of something from coming into being at all, or the checking or the holding uh, of something. So that uh, when we talk about the, the uh, uh, ending of ignorance, it doesn't mean that ignorance has begun and then it stops. It can also mean the non-arising of ignorance, so that there isn't any avijja, there's just vijja. <laughs> so this third exit point is to sustain the, the heart, the jitta, in that quality uh, of awareness, so that... Um, this is related to the, the third noble truth, dukkha niroda, uh, in that respect that it's the, the niroda, it's the, uh, the, the non-arising, the cessation of ignorance, the, the, there is, the mind is awake, it's aware, it, it knows, so that it's um, say not beginning that cycle at all, and so that 
that um, the way that the third noble truth needs to be developed or needs to be um, say, brought to fulfillment uh, in the, the, the teaching on the four noble truths, the Buddha says it's satchikata bhanti, it is to be realized, to, to notice. So this is one of the, um, the most challenging. And the, the other day when I was filling in the, the, uh, for Lumpur Sumato on the first Sunday talk about talking about the Four Noble Truths, I think I went through all of these, but it doesn't do any harm to go over, the, go over, go over it all again, I would say. <laughs> that uh, Satchikata Bhanti, they are, uh, this uh, third truth is to be realized, the ending of Dukkha is to be realized. So when the mind is awake and aware and knowing, then there's a quality of peacefulness and ease, but peace does not grab our attention. Space, silence, peace, stillness, they don't grab our attention, they don't captivate the senses, they don't catch our eye. When something moves, the eye turns to it and, and says, oh, what's that? You know, is that a bird flying by? Or is that, what was that that just came into my field of vision? If nothing is moving, the eye doesn't... <laughs> Go to that that thing that's not moving, or the ear doesn't say, "What was that sound? You know, what was that silence?" You know, <laughs> it, silence is not interesting. Stillness, space, peace is not interesting. So, with this um, third exit point of being uh, awake, being aware, and sustaining that quality of awareness, this is very challenging in some respects because. It's very easy to be awake, to be aware, to be peaceful for a few seconds, and then there's a sort of, oh, this is peaceful. <laughs> we, we switch off that uh, peacefulness, stillness, silence, spaciousness. It can easily uh, be overtaken by that, the, the habits of, of delusion, of moha, of, of unmindfulness, of just switching off and not, uh, not fully knowing, not, not fully realizing that quality. So uh, uh, that uh, development or the, the fulfillment of that, uh, that third noble truth or following that, that third exit point can be uh, most sort of challenging or difficult. But it's, uh, I would say it's, it's also most rewarding because the mind is not creating, it's not sort of getting drawn into that cycle. It's not, it's not creating self-view or conceit around what we think, what we feel, what we see, smell, taste and touch, what we remember, what we imagine. The, the, the mind is not creating a, a conceit, self-view is not forming a, a solid subject-object division, but rather it's resting in what I, I like to call subjectless, objectless awareness. So fully attuned to the present reality, the present field of experience, but not creating a person out of it, not, not here, not there. So this, I would say, is a third exit point and uh, related to the third noble truth. So a couple of years ago, when I was leading a, a, a retreat on the, people had asked me to give uh, talks about the dependent origination, and I thought, well, it's kind of neat that each of the those three exit points all relate to the, 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 the first three noble truths, but what about number four? We've already got back to the beginning of the cycle. So is there an exit related to the fourth noble truth um, uh, that I'm not thinking of or I'm, I'm not uh, aware of? And, and how could you go back before, you know, back before the zero point, back before sort of number one on the cycle? So I was uh, pondering this and reflecting on it. And then I remembered that there was a, a particular teaching in the Book of the Tens 
in the numerical discourses, the Anguta and Nikaya. If you want to look it up, it's Sutta number 61. There's very few places in the, in the Pali Canon where the Buddha speaks about the causes or the origins of Avijja. Uh, in the, uh, I think in the, uh, he talks about the, um, the uh, I think in, in the Majjhima Nikaya, I think in the, um, let's see, I think it's in, um, one of the early suttas, I think it's not sutta number nine. <laughs> Again, I'm not remembering very correctly, uh, not clearly. But uh, he talks about the asavas, the outflows, as being a cause for ignorance. Uh, but it's not something that he speaks about very often. But in this particular uh, sutta, in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Tens, he goes into it in quite some detail uh, about where, where ignorance comes from. And uh, he says that there, you know, the ignorance ha- has a cause, has a support. And uh, that is the the five hindrances, and the five hindrances they have a, a cause, they have a support. They're, 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 there's qualities that fuel the the five hindrances uh, of sense, desire, ill will, uh, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. The five uh, nivarana, and he said that it's the five uh, unwholesome, um, uh, the, the five uh, uh, kinds of uh, sorry, the three kinds of unwholesomeness: unwholesomeness in speech, unwholesomeness in action, unwholesomeness in thought, unskillfulness in those areas. That's what feeds the five hindrances, and what feeds those three unwholesome uh, uh, actions or those, those three uh, unwholesome attitudes. And uh, he says it's lack of sense restraint, uh, being say compulsive, impulsive, or uh, following your your impulses uh, not being restrained in in your in your body in your speech in your se- in in controlling the the senses and he said that, and that lack of sense restraint that also has a a, a fuel that has a, that that has a, a source that is that's supported by something and that lack of sense restraint is supported by lack of uh, of uh, mindfulness and full awareness satisampajanya and a lack of mindfulness and full awareness is supported, is fueled by a um, a lack of wise reflection and uh, not not reflecting wisely. And wise ref- uh, a lack of wise reflection is supported, is fueled by a um, uh, a a lack of uh, of faith. That you don't you don't have uh, a, a quality of faith in Dhamma, faith in reality, a faith in in spiritual practice. A, faith, a lack of faith is also has a fuel, has a, a source, has a uh, a root, and that is not hearing good teachings, sad, uh, sadhamma savana, not listening to the teachings, not paying attention to spiritual direction, not uh, not reflecting on on reality in a skillful way. And then he says, and not hearing the good Dhamma, that has a, uh, a source, that has a fuel, and it's uh, not spending time with good people, sapurisa, sangseva. Um, so that is the root, that's the source that he points to as the origins of, uh, of ignorance <laughs> is not spending time with good people, not spending time with, with uh, good-hearted, well, uh, well-rounded, spiritually motivated people. That's the root. And he says, but if you do spend time with, uh, with uh, helpful people, people who are sapurisa, good, good-hearted, well-rounded, spiritually oriented people, then... <laughs> 
then uh, you gives uh, creates opportunities to listen to the to the good teachings sadhamma savana if you listen to to uh, helpful teachings good teachings valid spiritual teachings this gives rise to faith yeah, faith then uh, gives rise to uh, to, to wise reflection, to yoni uh, so manasikara, wise reflection then uh, gives rise to and supports um, uh, sati sampajanya, mindfulness and full awareness, or intuitive wisdom, uh, that comprehensive uh, mindfulness. If there's mindfulness and full awareness, then that leads to sense restraint, to living responsively rather than reactively, not being impulsive or compulsive, but rather uh, responsive and, and uh, attuned uh, to to what's appropriate, what's, what's beneficial, what's uh, uh, noble and, and, and liberating uh, according to time and place and situation. So if you are living uh, with sense restraint, if there's Indriya Sangvara, then that, um, that supports the five, uh, sorry, the, the three kinds of wholesomeness, wholesomeness in thought, wholesomeness in speech, wholesomeness in action. And that then supports the, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, that the four foundations of mindfulness support the seven factors of enlightenment, and then the seven factors of enlightenment support true knowledge and liberation. Ta-da! <laughs> so, uh, t- in other words, vijja, or, uh, awareness, awakened awareness. So uh, I felt this is, well, that's a, a very helpful way of thinking of the, the sort of the fourth exit point is really, who do you choose to spend your time with? Who are your friends? How do you... How do you spend your time? What do you, um, uh, what sort of um, choices do we make that sort of uh, bring about uh, and in, or support an environment, bring about the the, the presence of a, a helpful and supportive, encouraging environment? So again, I w- this is not the only way or, or sort of the true or proper way to understand this. It's just one particular pattern of, of reflection. But I, I feel it's, it's, it's also um, uh, carried out in, in a number of other teachings. Like the, in the beginning of the Mangala Sutta, the discourse on the highest blessings, the Buddha says that uh, when he's asked, what are the, what are the highest blessings? Now, a Mangala is, um, uh, it, it can mean a, a, something like a, a, a um, spiritual uh, blessing, uh, of, uh, or a protection. It can be like a magical charm or a talisman or a protection against illness or harm. So a mangala can be um, or kind of a, a mantra that you recite or a, a tattoo with a kind of a, a, that sort of protects you from being bitten by dogs or from, protects you from diseases or, or different things. So a mangala can be that kind of a lucky charm or a protective device. Um, and uh, this uh, deva comes to the Buddha and says, "You know, what is the what is the highest mangala? What's the highest blessing? What, uh, how would you describe that?" But then the list that the Buddha gives, I think it's thirty-eight mangalas, <laughs> mangalas that he describes. That uh, there's nothing about lucky charms or mantras or, or um, even um, uh, you know, anything of that nature at all. But rather, it, all of the the mangalas he describes are about choices that we make, skillful. Uh, actions and speech, and the very first on the list of the the, the mangalas he describes in the Mangala Sutta is asevana uh, chabala nang panditana chasevana, not to associate with fools, but to associate with the wise. This is the highest blessing. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, avoiding those of foolish ways, 
associating with the wise. This is the highest blessing. So right there, at the beginning of that, that sutta, sort of number one on the list, don't hang out with foolish people, you know, spend time with, with, uh, with, with wholesome, with helpful people. Or similarly, the Buddha's teaching about spiritual friendship. When Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha uh, that spiritual friendship, Kalyanamitta, is half of the holy life, uh, then the Buddha said, not so, Ananda, it's not half the holy life, it's the whole of the holy life. Kalyanamitta, it's the whole of the holy life. So that spending, uh, uh, drawing close to, to wholesome friends, uh, to, to a wholesome noble people, that's the, 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 the kind of fuel or the support, that which really encourages and, and actualize, uh, enables us as human beings to actualize the, the holy life and living in a skillful way. So uh, as a, an exit point from the cycle, it's, uh, and I feel it's, and it's related to the fourth noble truth in terms of the, the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. It's all about what we do and the choices that we make in terms of attitude, in terms of speech, in terms of action, in terms of livelihood, in terms of mind training. It's, kind of, it's all about what we do. So it's a, it's a, a, a more general connection, I would say. <laughs> Uh, but it's, uh, uh, I feel it's, it is closely related insofar as it's about what are the choices that we make during the course of a day? How do we choose to spend our time? What do we put our attention on? What do we take our attention off? <laughs> so it's uh, seeing what's going to be uh, beneficial and what's going to be sort of helpful and supportive uh, to us. The, um, the quality of... Uh, of a sapurisa, a good person or a good-hearted person, a well-rounded person. Again, the, the Buddha spells, uh, spells that out in, in various places. Um, and uh, the, um, <coughs> in another of the wonderful little books of, of um, Venerable Payuto, Samdet um, uh, Payuto, uh, he spells out, his, uh, I think it's a book called The Constitution for Living. Then he, he goes through the, the, uh, these seven aspects of a sapurisa, a, a good uh, well-rounded person, and uh, without going into a lot of detail here, it's it's really about develop uh, uh, developing your life with with mindfulness and full awareness. It's like a, a to to be a, a, a sapurisa uh, yourself to uh, to to uh, say develop your own life, but also recognizing those qualities in other people. So uh, a sapurisa, a well-rounded, a good-hearted person, they contemplate the causes of things. They, they look into where things come from. Uh, that's dhamma-nyutta. Atta-nyutta means they look at the results of things. So someone, people who are, uh, who are thoughtful, who pay attention to uh, where things come from, where they, where they go, they, how the processes of nature and, and, and life, how they work, and what leads to benefit, what leads to harm. Um, so those are, are the uh, the first two. The third one is atanyuta, knowing your own character. So uh, you know if you're an extrovert or if you're an introvert, or you're uh, you're you're good with your hands, or you're, or you're not good with your hands, or you're, you're an artistic type, or you're a, a mechanical type, or or both. <laughs> so knowing your own character, knowing your own personality, your own strengths and weaknesses. Then the fourth one on the list is matanyuta, which is 
knowing the right amount. Um, so that uh, when it's, if you're working, like we have these samagi uh, working bees every, every week on a Friday, so knowing when it's time to, to take a break, knowing when, uh, uh, or the right amount, or even like I was pulling nails from uh, timbers out of the publications building, so knowing what's the right amount of pressure. <laughs> To uh, to to be heaving on a, a an old nail stuck into a piece of wood, um, when you're eating food, that which is one of the most challenging areas to know the right amount. When uh, you're you're eating uh, and you're listening to what your body needs, you're feeling that, and then that recognition. Okay, um, this is this is enough. This is about to be enough. Uh, okay, this is time to put the spoon down. <laughs> the, and to, to, to finish eating rather than just carrying along eating compulsively or, or, or wanting to, to just finish off everything that's in your bowl if you took a little bit more than you, than you really needed, but knowing, okay, that's enough, knowing the right amount and then stopping. Or even before that, when you're going along the servery here at Amravati, when your hand is reaching for the, <laughs> for the dishes to, to know the right amount to, to pick up and to, to put into your bowl. So the um, uh, so Matanyutara is the is the fourth one, then um, the uh, then Kalanyuta, knowing the right time, so uh, the the right time to come to a uh, to a meeting, the right time if having a conversation. Okay, that's uh, that that's enough of this uh, time to finish this. Um, uh, or you, you want to have a conversation with someone and you see that they're really busy and they're active and think, oh, okay, this is not the right time to have a conversation with them, leave it to another time. So kala nyuta, kala is time. Uh, then the last two are um, puga, uh, the, the uh, knowing other people's characters and personalities so that the people that you're working with, the, the uh, person that you're talking to, is it a young person, an old person? Do you know them well? Do you not know them well? You know, uh, What's uh, appropriate to the the time, the place, the situation to be uh, to be talking about, or uh, what's what fits in with who they are and how they are. And then the last one is parisanyuta, knowing the group. Uh, so who are you talking to? What's the occasion? Who are you with? Uh, uh, is it appropriate for you to be talking? <laughs> are you senior? Are you junior? Are you leading? Are you following? Um, are people agitated? Are they calm? Are they? Uh, uh, what what fits in with the group? What is appropriate for for you to do in relationship to the the group that you're being a part of? So all of those are different ways that we are, are say developing mindfulness and full awareness. Also seeing that in other folks and seeing that if someone does have these qualities of a, a well-rounded person, then sapurisa <laughs> sangseva draw close, draw close and spend time with uh, people who have those kind of qualities. Uh, um, and if they don't, if they are people who are reactive or agitated, uh, opinionated, or um, they don't know the, the, the right amount, they don't know the, the time, the place, they, they are insensitive to the people around them and uh, kind of chaotic and, and um, uh, say, uh, self-centered or, or impulsive, compulsive, then to be considering, well, do I need to be close to, to to these to this person or to this group of people? Is it helpful to me for me to be with people who function in this kind of way, or is this just creating more agitation and difficulty within me? Or 
uh, uh, do I need to be spending time in this environment or can I put my attention elsewhere? Similarly, with what we put our attention onto in terms of the media, what we might be, say, uh, reading or watching um, in terms of of media activity, what we engage with on the television or computer or, or uh, what we spend our time listening to or, or reading. Uh, uh, that's also, I'd say, part of this whole um, sapurisa sangseva. What, what do we put our attention on to? Do you, are we spending our time in the f field of influence of people who are being foolish or violent or selfish or, or you know, uh, crazy, you know, or, uh, agitated? Or are we spending time around people who are thoughtful and, and uh, a kind, generous, um, and uh, uh, attentive? You know, what... what uh, what are, what are the effects of the choices that we make in terms of where we put our attention and who we choose to, to be with? Maybe the, the last thing to, to share about uh, spiritual birth control is uh, not just about our own mind um, and these four exit points from the, the cycle uh, which are sort of related to our own choices, our, our own uh, in, uh, actions with respect to our own life, but also birth control, um, in, in biological birth control is about not, uh, not bringing ba uh, babies into the world that uh, are not wished for. Um, but uh, so I say birth con there's also an aspect of birth control about not creating other people. So it's not just about not creating this person, <laughs> but it's also uh, about not creating other people. Um, and so uh, many, many years ago, uh, there was a, one of the Sangha members was going off to spend time with their family and was quite worried about the, the uh, how reactive uh, their parents were in relationship to them being a monastic, and uh, you know they were quite concerned, quite sort of um, uh, say uh, worried about how it was going to work out. It was the first time going back as a monastic to stay with the family, and uh, this was years and years ago, at, uh, in the early days of Chithurst Monastery. And Lumpur Sumedha made this, this very wonderful comment uh, at the time that really struck me. And he said, the kindest thing you can do for your parents is not to create them. And it was one of those, the whole room went sort of, oh, <laughs> because it's not the way that we think. It's like, oh, what can I do for my parents? I'm a, I'm a monk, I'm a nun, you know, and they're, they're not happy about this or they would prefer that. And how, how can I, what can I do to make it right, to make it good or make them happy? And it was so on the mark, <laughs> so uh, apposite, uh, and so helpful. It really stuck with, stuck with me, even though Lumpur said it about 40 years ago now. So uh, the kindest thing that we can do for other people is not to create them, which means not to, um, say, solidify our ideas. This person is like this, you know, he is like this, she is like that. Um, the, the things that we like, the things that we dislike, or just the ordinary everyday judgments about how people are. It um, doesn't mean to say we, we pretend people are invisible, uh, that they, <laughs> they, don't, uh, they don't have any conventional existence, but it's the way that the mind says, oh, my mother is like this, or my sister is like that, or you know, I, I am like this, and this is the relationship we have is like this way, and it shouldn't be this way, it should be that way. And um, We create this false kind of solidity, and, uh, and then that... Uh, false division of me here, you there, as permanent, solid, separate entities, then no matter how hard we try to, to uh, say, convene or connect with, with another in a harmonious or compassionate way, there's still me here and you there. <laughs> and that 
it's, uh, it's never going to be uh, arriving at a quality of real concord. But if we let go of each other, we don't create fixed views about who, uh, who people are, how they are. The, per the personalities still carry on. You still have female bodies or male bodies or tall or short or our eyes are still the same colors. The, these conventional aspects still pertain, but the mind is not making fixed judgments. So, you know, she is like this or he is like that. Or, I am this way. I want to be like that. Or, you know, he shouldn't be this way. He should be that way. <laughs> Rather, we are able to recognize those habits of perception or judgment and, and let them be known for what they are. They're just passing impressions or passing uh, judgments, formations that arise and pass away. They don't have any solidity. And mysteriously, when we let go of each other, <laughs> when we don't create each other and carry each other around, we are, and again, speaking from experience, we're far more able to find a place of concord between, uh, between us or the, the apparent self and other uh, that uh, by letting go of each other we find that we are able to be more in, a, in accord with each other and, and uh, it's a, a, a cause for contemplation and, and reflection that, uh, it's a mysterious thing but uh, the, the, uh, the, the most compassionate thing we can do for others and the most helpful thing we can do for others is to not create them <laughs> and without not making uh, things fixed in terms of, of this being and other beings then there's an openness there's a capacity to attune to the time the place the situational as good qualities of the sapurisa can function <laughs> freely without being clogged up with conceiving of uh, you know, I, I am and you are or there's that manyati, that eye-making and mind-making doesn't uh, distort or clog up or cloud the system, but rather with a, with a quality, a clarity, then the heart can attune to the time, the place, the situation, and then action and, and speech and, and attitude can be formed in a, a way that is, is most beneficial, most helpful for the situation. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. So there was uh, one question on the theme that was sent in. So I will uh, address this one first of all. My question relates to the link birth, jati, within the dependent origination. My understanding is that birth, quote-unquote, in this instance, refers to the birth or the arising of a second feeling or mind object. Uh, when, in the absence of insight, craving and clinging, habitual behaviors and becoming, following quick succession, resulting in the birth or arising of a new mental object. I'm assuming that birth, quote-unquote, here, does not mean the birth of a human being. Can you clarify this point and talk a bit more about the notion of rebirth in general from a Buddhist perspective, in particular related to awareness at the point of death of the, of the physical body, please? So there's a few things there. I think I covered a lot of that 
in the the, the talk, um, the um, uh, so birth in that respect, jati, is the the way the mind uh, follows. Um, there's a, there's a feeling of of liking or disliking uh, that in that the vedana sensation, a pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. If there is ignorance, then uh, it's a, uh, influenced by avijja, not seeing clearly. Then, when there's a feeling of like, then that the bridge is crossed into into craving. That I like turns into I want, and then that craving conditions clinging. I uh, I, I gotta have, and then the clinging conditions becoming bhava, which is I'm gonna have, <laughs> and then bhava conditions birth jati, which is I've got. Uh, the the mind is sort of moving towards and absorbing into that the thing that it likes, or it can be equally uh, aversion in terms of uh, of, of uh, disliking something and then contending against it or or getting rid of it or or destroying it, and getting away from it, and then jati uh, that birth or that um, say commitment to that the thing that you've just got uh, a sense object or a, a, an achievement or a a, um, a thing that you've got rid of, that then there's that that yes, you know, I've uh, I've got it. That's the birth moment, and then having got it, then we uh, then the uh, aging, aging and death, jara marana soka pari deva dukkha domana supayasa. That's the having got that, having bought that new car, house, having moved into that new uh, new monastery, <laughs> having. Uh, the, uh, taken hold of that uh, angry feeling and, and spoken on it, acted on it, and let that person know what you what you feel about them. And there's a yes, <laughs> okay. Uh, and so that in that commitment of bhava and and birth, then there's there's a a, a limitation that that comes. There's a, a a way that the mind is is sort of narrowing its its. Uh, Values really—it's been born into that. You, you've bought that thing; it now belongs to you. You've got that car, you've got that house, you're in that monastery. You've you've uh, uh, you've made that commitment, and then you live with the results of that commitment. So there will be some pleasant and, and some neutral aspects to it, but there will also be some painful aspects to that. And so that the uh, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair—that's uh, uh, describing. Um, the natural part of that process of having been born into any kind of psychological state, any kind of event, any kind of role, um, then there comes that uh, those painful aspects when that object is criticized or when it's damaged or when it's lost or, or when the thing that you thought you got rid of comes back even stronger than it than before, uh, you didn't get rid of it at all. And so that then uh, the effect of that having been born then uh, it has these these painful resonances, and that's what we call in brief dukkha, that that uh, that painfulness. So then the uh, so I, I think I described that fairly thoroughly in the in the talk, and again <laughs> in this little book, complete with handy dandy diagrams, um, uh, a few to help explain things. Um, that uh, a lot of that is, is explained in there, uh, or talked about in there, and then maybe the last point was. Um, can you talk a bit more about the notion of rebirth in general from a Buddhist perspective, in particular related to awareness at the point of death of the physical body? So the, um, uh, there's a, when reading that question, what comes to mind is, 
a, a particular exchange between the Buddha and Mahanama, who was a relative of his um, uh, in the Sakya uh, uh, community. Uh, and so Mahanama was the uh, the ruler, uh, the sort of senior person in the in this uh, Sakyan community, and he was asking the Buddha, um, you know, what uh, what advice can you give to somebody on their deathbed? You know, sometimes uh, uh, Mahanama would be called to somebody's uh, bedside as they're dying, and he's asking the Buddha, what what kind of advice do you give to someone who's dying and at the end of their life? Uh, what, what what's the best things to to say? And then the, uh, this is in the connected uh, the connected discourses on stream entry, uh, Sotapati, uh, the uh, uh, section number fifty five, I think. <laughs> connected discourses about stream entry in the uh, in that collection, and uh, the, the Buddha says, well, f- first of all. Um, you, uh, if you're at someone's bedside, you ask them, you know, are you worried about your um, your family, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, and you know the people who'll be left behind, and then and the person says, yes, I'm worried about my family, and then the Buddha said, well, if they say they're worried about their family, uh, then you say, well, whether you worry about your family or you don't worry about your family, you're going to die anyway, so better that you let go of your worries about your family. If you're worried about your property and your businesses. Uh, your business concerns. Uh, uh, Yes, I am. I'm worried about my property, about my business. Well, whether you worry about it or you don't worry about it, then you're going to die anyway, so it's better that you stop worrying about that, let go of your worries about that. So this might sound like a bit of a brutal kind of, they call the consolations, the fairly kind of blunt sort of consolation. But the Buddha Buddha was very straightforward in these respects. He was not a... um, uh, uh, he, uh, he was not afraid to be um, to be uh, blunt and to speak in a, a direct way. He wasn't always giving a sort of uh, uh, cuddly option, as it were. But and these are called the consolations. <laughs> so anyway, there was a few of those. He said that you're letting go of your family, or letting go of your uh, your business and your property, and uh, and the, and all of that. Whether you worry about it or you don't worry about it, you know you're you're dying anyway. So better to let that all go. And then uh, he says, uh, uh, are you hoping to be reborn in a heavenly world? And they say, yes, I would like to be reborn in the heaven of the, the four celestial uh, monarchs, the Chattu Maharajas. And, and then you should, if they say they want to be born in the, the heaven of the, the four great kings, then you say, well, uh, why, why settle for being born in the, the heaven of the four great kings? You could be born in the Tavatinsa heaven. And then so why, be, why settle for being born in the Tavatinsa heaven? You could be born in the Yama heaven and then the Tusita heaven and the heaven of the, the, uh, those who delight in creating and those who delight in the creations of others. And, and why settle for being reborn in the heaven of those who delight in the creations of others? You could be reborn in the Brahma world. And then he says, uh, and relating to this question here, he says, well, why, uh, uh, why settle for being reborn in the Brahma world? Because even in the Brahma world, the mind is still uh, fixed around qualities of identity. Better for you uh, to let go of your uh, fixation on being reborn in the Brahma world and instead to focus your attention on Sakaya Niroda, on the cessation of identity. Uh, so, and that's one of the very few places in the Pali Canon, as far as I know, that that term is is used. Sakaya Niroda. So, the uh, Sak means true or real. Kaya means the body or the person. Niroda means cessation. Like, so, the cessation of of uh, 
self-view, really, or the self-idea or identity. So, and then the Buddha said, if uh, uh, such a one focuses on the atten- focuses the attention on Sakaya Niroda, uh, then there is no difference between uh, the the jitta, the the heart, the mind of that person. Um, there no, there's no difference in the state of liberation of that person than in the uh, the, the the state of mind of one who has been an, a monk who's been an arahant for a hundred years. So one, and that's one of the few places where the Buddha talks about a layperson reaching arahantship. Uh, so again, that's worthy of note for people who wish to be uh, 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 appraised of that. That the. That that's one of the places where the Buddha talks about the possibility uh, or the capacity for lay people to be fully enlightened. But it's it's not a small statement. Uh, he can be fairly blunt in so in terms of the uh, whether you worry about your family or you don't worry about your family, you're going to die anyway. So to let go of your worries, that's can be fairly sort of seem fairly harsh. But at the other end of this teaching, you have this you know if if there is that realization of Sakaya Niroda, that awareness of, of uh, Letting go of identification uh, and uh, the, all that eye making and mind making is dropped. Then, the, as he said, there's no difference between the state of liberation of that that person and someone a, a bhikkhu who's been an arahant for a hundred years. So that's that's no small statement to make. That's a, that's not a, a a small thing. And so I feel that's you know, worthy of of consideration. So that uh, awareness at the point of death, I think if uh, that awareness is fully cultivated to that point of Sakaya Niroda, then um, there's the realization, Rupang Anatta, the body is not self, or the body alive, the body dead, what's that got to do with anything important? It's just, <laughs> there's awareness of the body alive, awareness of the body dead, that they, uh, the body is not self in the first place. So um, that that which is, I would say, uh, to spell that out a little bit, you know, that which is aware of the body or the personality isn't the body, the personality. That which knows the person isn't a person. That which is aware of this life, this moment, is not personal. It's not not human. <laughs> it's not uh, not limited by time or space. That uh, quality of awareness isn't male or female or monastic or lay or old or young or doesn't have a nationality or a location. It's uh, it's undefinable uh, in any in any of those terms, really. Yeah, awareness, it's aware, it's awake, it, it knows, but it's it's not confined or, or not cannot be defined by those ordinary uh, everyday qualities. On, on a conventional level, you can say yes, the Arjun Amaro is a human being, and he's talking <laughs> into the microphone and looking at the camera, the people around here. But that which knows this experience isn't Arjun Amaro. It's not a person. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have an age or a gender or a nationality or a language. <laughs> it, uh, it's uh, uh, beyond uh, all of those qualities. So if the heart truly awakens to that, then uh, the death of the body is uh, is a sort of minor event, like an in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. Bodies born, bodies die. The earth turns. You know, the sun rises, the sun sets. Uh, the, the those are changes in the in the field of experience, but there doesn't have to be anything that is sort of limiting or defining uh, 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 in those experiences. That that which knows change isn't changing. That which knows birth and death isn't being born and dying. That's words to re- referring to this quality, but the most important thing is to use the practice and the teachings to 
uh, to realize that, to have that sachikata bhanti, it is to be realized, it's to be known directly. Uh, having the words for it and having the sort of recording of it is one thing, but then it's the moment by moment recognition that you know, that, which, that, which, that which knows the person isn't a person. You know? That which is uh, aware is not d- confined or defined by time or location or identity, by causality. You know, one of Lumpur Cha's teachings, uh, the, the, the book that's, tr- that's called A Taste of Freedom in English, in the Thai version I think is called Nok Het Nirpon. Forgive my bad pronunciation. Nok Het, which Nok means outside, Het is the cause. So outside of cause, uh, uh, Nir means above, Porn means the, the result. So outside, uh, outside of cause and above effect. That's the, the title uh, that they are uh, taken from one of Lumpur Cha's Dhamma talks for that, for that book. And I feel that's a, a helpful contemplation in this respect of that awareness is nok hait nirpon. It's outside of cause, above effect. Cause and effect only relates to the world of, of time. And uh, if Dhamma is timeless, the Kaliko, what does that say about cause and effect? <laughs> so that when the heart uh, awakens to its own, its, its nature as Dhamma, it's, no, it's knowing that timeless uh, quality. Cause and effect don't apply. Location doesn't apply. Language and concept uh, uh, doesn't apply you know, that as a letting go of all of those those aspects, those attributes, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the the death of the body, they say, is a particularly helpful uh, sort of a ripe moment if the attitude is, uh, say, uh, skillful and and fully developed in, in, with, and uh, imbued with wisdom. But but we don't have to wait till the body's dying. <laughs> That's the, the great blessing of Buddha Dhamma and the, the, the many practices that the, the Buddha say spelled out and that we have as uh, say uh, say the, uh, actions and qualities uh, uh, modes of living that we have that the, the Buddha laid out and our teachers uh, have laid out over the, the years that are available to us today that we can follow these practices. We can use these teachings and uh, put this uh, uh, into action. We can, we can embody uh, that. Uh, it's not just a, a set of words or ideas, but we can bring this uh, sort of realization into being before the body's dying. <laughs> we don't have to wait till the last breath to, to realize that Sakaya Niroda, that the point of, of meditation, particularly Vipassana meditation, is to bring about that realization of, of Sakaya Niroda, that cessation of identity, that, the true seeing of not self, uh, and that can be done you know, here and now today. This it doesn't have, we don't have to wait till the, the last breath is coming. So that's the encouragement of the teachings and and uh, the, our teachers is to make use of the time that we have and uh, not not leave it to the deathbed for that that kind of uh, quality of liberation to be actualized. So I'm happy to open things up if there's any questions in the in the room here, in the temple. So see there's a couple of microphones around. So if anyone has any questions, we have a, a little bit of little bit more time today. Thanks, Ajahn. Um I had a question about um 
if if uh, the practice is um, goes uh, well when somebody sits, but then <laughs> when there's a lot of stimulation, then it becomes uh, very even more um, uh, difficult than it had been before. Somebody became more adept at sitting or walking meditation. How to kind of um, yeah bring the uh, benefits of sitting and keep keep the staying centered in the busyness of daily life if that makes sense uh, yeah I think so um, or the the one word answer is practice <laughs> that's a, that's a uh, I mean, there's different. Um, I'm kind of joking, kind of not joking, because um, that, um, based upon the fact of, of seeing how uh, uh, the effects of getting caught up, I mean, there's a lot of activity or engagement, and then seeing, oh, I'm getting really stirred up by this, or I'm getting uh, you know, carried away, or, or, or confused, or are uh, shaken, <laughs> you know, the sage of peace is not shaken, you know, <laughs> not agitated. Um, so recognizing, oh, this is not the sage at peace, this is an agitated Samanera. <laughs> and to, to, uh, to recognize that, oh, this is the feeling of being caught up, this is the effect of getting swept up by this activity or this engagement, this conversation. In a way, so it's like rather like the first exit point. Okay, having got caught up, having got born into that that conversation, that activity, then here we are. This is this is the dukkha of having got caught up. Aha. Uh -huh, okay. Now this can ripen in two ways. <laughs> so looking at the results of having got caught up and, and carried away, and then rather than just reacting to that, I think, oh, that's really bad. I shouldn't be like this. I should be. Uh, I should be a different way, or, or, the, or I'm really annoyed with this person who, who who got me caught up in this way. So that's all missing the point. That's not realizing dukkha. That's blaming yourself or blaming other people and, and just creating more dukkha. That's the dukkha ripening in more dukkha, <laughs> continuing the cycle. So uh, I feel one of the most helpful things um, is after we have been caught up in a worry or an aversion or a greedy impulse or... A, uh, whatever it might be, um, just a busy impulse. When there is that moment of recognition, like oh, uh, uh, and having followed that, now it's like this. It's like that's the 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 moment where there's the opportunity to to apprehend that quality of dukkha. Okay, having got caught up, having got drawn into that worry or that busyness or that that uh, irritation, now it feels like this. It's here. It is, and that's really the. The receiving or the knowing of dukkha. It's like having done that, that's the cause, here's the effect. It's this way. So that's where we turn the painful results of, of our actions and what we've been, we've been caught in. Um, and we use that to inform um, a skillful way of relating to that. And uh, rather than, you know, I should or I shouldn't or they should or they shouldn't and creating more dukkha, that, okay, that's the cause, this is the effect, it feels this way. And then in that moment, that which knows the effects of that being caught up, that is not tied to it. That's the awareness that's, that's knowing the, the, the dukkha, the, 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 the sort of <laughs> the, the, the wreckage of having followed that impulse. Okay, here's the effect of it. It's like this. And it's, it's a challenge. 
But the more that we practice, the more we're able to just see, that's the cause, this is the effect, it's like this. And not adding anything to it, then uh, it's still a mess or it's still a painful result. You're still, your stomach is still overstuffed or <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, the, uh, but there's that, uh, that quality of awareness is being established in relationship to that. that there's, a, there's that knowing of it. And then seeing that um, uh, that's the cause, this is the effect, then uh, that uh, real appreciation, then it sinks in. So the next time that you're drawn into a situation or the similar pattern of events, then th there's, a re there's a remembering on an on a, on a almost physical level. It's not just a, an idea, oh, I shouldn't do this, I should do that, but rather, oh, I know where this goes, and then there's less of an impulse, a, a compulsion to engage, because it, and it's, it's, it's strange how it works, but the more wordless that learning is, the more you know, non-conceptual, the more, in a way, visceral, physical that, that learning is, the more easy it is not to be drawn in the next time similar conditions come about, where somebody's getting sort of agitated and excited, and where you got drawn in before, something in you knows, I know where this goes, <laughs> like, do I really need to get involved in this? And without aversion or, or criticism of another person or a situation, is that, okay, let's hold this a bit more spaciously, or do I need to join in? And... And the, the more that you see, oh, that, that brings a very good result, then that's a sort of positive reinforcement. Okay, that arose, that was the choice that was made. Uh, how does this feel now? Great. <laughs> and, and that's the, the other aspect of it, I would say, is along with that sort of the yoni so manasikara, the kind of wise reflection, is a, the, uh, in a way, mindfulness directed towards the body that um, often we are caught up in, in uh, people and actions and words and we miss the, 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 the way that the body is holding itself or the, 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 te the, uh, the, the, the tensions or stresses or, or the, the posture of the body. And so that during the course of the day, uh, to continually bring the attention to the feelings of the body, how you're standing, how you're walking. When you're going from A to B, are you kind of going somewhere or are you with the action of walking in a, in a peaceful and clear way? And particularly when there isn't much going on or there isn't anything that's got your name on, <laughs> that's the, the best time to really establish that quality of mindfulness of the body. To, to be developing that track of, okay, how does the body feel? How does my back feel? What's the expression on my face? How am I holding my shoulders or my stomach or my hands? Um, uh, how, how am I walking? How am I standing? How does this feel? Just bringing attention to that, not to be judgmental, but just feeling it, knowing it. And then, then when there is some activity or there's more of an engagement, then that, that track of, of knowing the body and attending to the body in a mindful way is more well-formed, it's, it's more uh, established. So then, um, when you are in that process of getting swept up by something, caught up in some activity or a conversation or, or some kind of gotta-do-ness, <laughs> then the, the, the feelings of the body are more accessible. The, the, you recognize, oh, my, my jaw just tightened on my, my shoulders, yeah, went, have gone rigid, my, my hands are clenched. And you notice that more, more readily, more quickly. And then that's, 
a helpful signal that okay there's things are getting out of balance and then relaxing the body being more attuned to to the present through the the feelings of the body mindfulness of the body then it helps to be able to be in those situations but in a in a relaxed way like when i was heaving the nails out of the timbers you know just to not get the over focused on this this nail that's not uh, not budging and and to say okay now what's the best way to work on this am i using the right tool okay now if i if i pull this this crowbar uh, if i'm pulling it towards me if that nail suddenly goes i'm going to get a crowbar in my chin okay move it <laughs> so i'm pulling it but i'm pulling it away from soft flesh that's you know, in the in the in the trajectory so pulling it uh, that way so that uh, you're you're using your body awareness uh, and uh, in the in the midst of actions that you're 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 engaging in and so then that you still carry out the actions and you can be doing a lot of stuff in a in a busy you know in an active way with a lot of things uh, moving quickly or using a lot of muscle and and uh, such like but that doesn't mean it has to be stressful or burdensome that you can you can be moving quickly but extremely peacefully and that the, and develop, uh, developing a lot of uh, mindfulness of the body really helps in that it's, uh, and that uh, it's a very um, reliable uh, sort of indicator and a way of attuning to the the the, um, the reality of the present If you could pass the microphone to Ajahn Bodhivala. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. You talk a lot about dependent origination. And it seemed to me that the two main factors that create conflict in the world which are the jealousy and the stinginess. Through dependent origination, I couldn't find the origin of that. So would you please uh, find those origins so we can <laughs> uproot those two? Thank you, Ajahn. Jealousy and stinginess. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, there's one one of the um, uh, the places where the Buddha spells out dependent origination. I think it's in the. Uh, I I'm, I might be wrong, but I think in the the Mahanidana Sutta, the, the the long discourse on dependent origination in the Diganikaya, when it doesn't go to to speak about jealousy or stinginess, but it does talk about this is the cause for people taking up weapons and fighting with each other and arguing and and conflict. Sort of that. Uh, if I'm, I might be remembering that incorrectly. <laughs> so forgive me if I got that wrong. Safeguarding. So that trying to keep hold of the things that, that they have. So. So safeguarding the things, uh, so that uh, I think stinginess, trying to keep hold of the things that you got and keep away people from taking them, keep people away from you, uh, uh, from taking them away, keep, keeping, <laughs> to stop people taking them uh, away from you. But uh, yeah, it's a lot to do with the 
feeding of self-view and the, that uh, my possessions, my activity, my place, my things are more important than yours. My happiness is more important than, than yours. Uh, me having things is more important than you having anything. So, um, uh, and then, which would relate to stinginess uh, and possessiveness and keeping hold of the things that you've got. And then jealousy is the flip side of that, of like, you've got something that I should have and, and you don't deserve it and I should have that instead. And uh, so it produces that sense of um, uh, a, 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 greed, a sort of mixture of, of greediness and, uh, and aversion in relationship to others because um, there's a feeling of lack on your part. You know, you deserve that, uh, that uh, say those resources or that reputation or that, that power in the world and, and somebody else who doesn't deserve it has got it and, and you're the one who should, should have it. So they're all based around self-view and, uh, and co that conceiving mind that the, that, uh, the eye-making and mind-making habits. So I feel that by reflecting on dependent origination and seeing how any, like the, the Buddha said in that, te that teaching from um, the, the, uh, the Dhatu Vibhanga Sutta about uh, conceiving is, is a disease, is a tumor, it's like a poisoned arrow. That, that the more that any uh, attitude that we have is based on that uh, egotistical thinking, self-centered thinking, necessarily it's going to be painful. And then the opposite, the more that that's uh, recognized as, uh, even though it's a strong habit in the, and around, in the world and around us and, and drives a lot of activity in the world, that uh, the more that we can see that that self-centered thinking is, is painful for us and it's, and it's divisive between us and, and, and others, then the, the more that we can learn how to, to let, the more we're encouraged to let go of it, get beyond it. That, that article I read in the teaching of the Lord Buddha to the Devas, and the answer in that, which I'm not satisfied in that, is desire. The origin of those two factors mm -hmm. is desire. And that's the reason why I asked you. Thank you, Ajahn. Ajahn, what you said before about uh, um, when the timeless aspect of the Dhamma is realized, the cause-effect relationship kind of doesn't apply. Does this mean that the whole um, dependent origination cycle kind of collapses over itself? Short answer: Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, like like if um, if there's vija, then the whole thing doesn't begin in the first place. And that that uh, explanation by Venerable Payuto I found very very helpful because rather than so dukkha niroda meaning dukkha has arisen and then it stops, it can also mean the non-arising of dukkha. That it it sort of the, the whole thing doesn't begin. And so it's, it's one of those areas where the conceptual mind 
it, it conceives in time <laughs> and in in uh, in a sort of subject object format so it's 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 difficult to to use the thinking mind to to um really appreciate it but uh, like Lumpur, Sumedha has often been talking recently about time and timelessness and how you know, timelessness, it's unimaginable. You can't really create an image of it. So how, what is the world like without cause and effect? <laughs> you can't really imagine it. But uh, I found that that expression of Lumpur Cha's uh, of outside of cause and above effect, it's, it's like... Yeah, in the conventional world, there's cause and effect. We say it's Sunday afternoon, two o'clock. There's a dhamma talk, <laughs> and then the you know, dhamma talk's an hour long, and then there's some questions. You know, there's, there's a cause, there's an effect, and the, you know the clock now says three thirty-five. So that it's the world of time and beginnings and endings. But in the world, in in the realm of timelessness or the dimension of, of timelessness, then then if there's no time, then how can cause and effect operate in the same way? It does, doesn't make sense. So that rather than trying to create a, 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 an, a, an imagined picture, so what would the world be like without cause and effect? Or what is, what is the timeless like? That Because our imagination can only draw upon our, our memory or our experience, and it's it it runs out of it's like running out of paint you know you you there's no paint left in your palette it's like there's nothing to paint with so that it's uh, it's an area i find uh, is very very helpful and inspiring listening to lumpur's teachings on this because in a way it encourages you to not try and fill up that that sort of spacious wordless uh, unformed uh, appreciation with an idea or a plan or a description or an explanation but rather this is the timeless it's it's like this <laughs> and why he says it's like this you know, uh, over and over again because you, you you can't imagine or describe or use words or concepts to to re- uh, represent the reality perfectly but it can be known directly through uh, through the jitta uh, and so that the, the the teaching and the practices uh, of Dhamma, uh, continually pointing towards that, you know, y- uh, developing the, the 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 our life and situation, our attitudes to the point where that that letting go can happen, and not trying to formulate that uh, that ultimate reality of the way things are into a concept or a word or a description, but it, it, letting it be that which is embodied through realization in the in the present, and that's 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 the, the only. Um, I would say valid and valuable way to to relate to that. So just but just taking a, a phrase like with the meditation, I like to, to do things just like to take a phrase like uh, outside of cause and above effect, and just drop that into the into the mind and just let it, that have its effect, <laughs> as it were, or to, uh, or uh, like a, a phrase like that which knows the person isn't a person. And not have anything added on to that, just dropping that in. Because in that moment of phrasing those words internally, or let's say outside of, outside of cause, above effect, then there's a, 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 a period of clarity that comes as by saying those words, the, assum- the usual assumptions and habitual ways of seeing and thinking, they fall away, but they don't have to be re- replaced with anything. And that's the spaciousness that comes with that, you know, sort of popping that bubble. Then that's the 
the the answer, as it were. That's the, the quality that is is um, being realized. Uh, you know, in a sense, that the Dhamma is clarified uh, and more fully and completely knowable, realizable when those habitual judgments based on time and identity and, and space, they, they fall away. If that... Yeah, that, that's a lot of the way I practice in, in formal meditation is using those kind of, sort of world-stopping phrases <laughs> just to sort of burst that bubble and then just to, to leave that... that uh, the. Um, uh, the, to so leave that in, in, in even using words like space because like space is related to three dimensional ex- sensory experience so really space doesn't really apply form and, and formlessness doesn't really apply that those are all condi- words that are conditioned by our sensory experience so even they don't apply but just conventionally speaking just to say in the space of the mind <laughs> just leaving that space as open and uh, un uh, uh, unbiased as possible, and let, letting that sort of speak for itself, letting that be its own its own reality, and then watching as other things pop in and judgments arise, and and uh, here and there, you know, here, uh, here are the sort of pigeons uh, singing in the morning, you know, making their crewing noises in the morning, and then oh, there's a pigeon out there, and how the mind creates the world through attachment to a, a sensation or a sound or a feeling or uh, a memory and so on and then watching a world come into being and then again you know, that which knows the world is not limited by the world and then the, 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 um, the habitual judgments and limitations that the habits of perception create they, they, they fall away so perhaps that's enough for today so thank you for your good questions and uh, Please take these uh, reflections and may they serve you well.